What makes for a good roller coaster? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what is it that actually makes for a good roller coaster? Uh, I would suggest most of us probably aren't going to get the right answer immediately. We'll say, well, it needs to be really high. Not necessarily. Or it needs to go really fast. Maybe. Or it's got to have a, a big drop. Potentially. You know what a great roller coaster has to have? Rapid change. That's the whole thing. If you can get rapid change, the whole thing works. If you can't, it doesn't. You want the rapid change of that moment right at the top where it begins to go, and then you realize, I've made a terrible decision. (laughs) And then you get to the bottom of that first hill, and you're like, I weigh three times as much, and it's strange. And then if you're really small, you get to the top of the next hill, and your rear end comes off the seat, and then you really question your life decisions. (laughs) A great roller coaster is filled with moments of accelerated change. It's those moments that get it interesting. That's why little or children or big children hate the monorail. Please don't take me on the monorail. (laughs) There's no change. It's just the same all the way through. Part of how John tells the end of this chapter is much like a great roller coaster. It's punctuated with moments of accelerated change. And I'm talking neck-jerking, whiplash-inducing, like just shocking change. You remember he's taking up here the the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and we've broken it up a bit funny as we've walked through and understood the death very clearly. That Jesus, a real man, also real God, is arrested unjustly, he's tried unjustly, and he's murdered unjustly, and the vast majority of his people run away. And John, being the young man ministering uh, with Jesus there, being his disciple, tells the story uh, probably as emotively and as grippingly as any of the Gospels. Including nuggets that would only have been known by a man who's standing there watching his Savior being beaten. Watching his Savior take his mother and place her in John's home who would have understood the tremendous sense of hopelessness to hear those words, it is finished, and then watch him die on the cross. I mean, John's standing there. He's not far away. I mean, he's close enough that a guy who's suffocating to death can actually talk to him and have a conversation. Oh, by the way, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. He's right there watching Christ die. And he gives the dramatic pause that we picked up on where Jesus dies on Friday, he's buried, and you have the world's longest holiday. The Passover Saturday where the Jews gather together, they celebrate the Passover and here all of Jesus' disciples and followers gather to practice their Judaism in the midst of hopelessness. The contrast of of a dead Savior, a dead Master, and a high holy day, and the incongruity. Those things just don't seem to matter. 
And if we kind of piece the Gospels together, we pick up on a timeline of what happens that Sunday morning. Jesus is raised. He raises himself Sunday morning, really early. And he leaves the tomb. He leaves in a good order. It's not in the condition of someone who wakes up having been wrapped in 75 pounds of spices and, uh, you know, bedclothes and wraps. Most of us, were we to wake up in that situation, it would be like waking up in the worst of all straitjackets and we would lose our minds. Instead, Jesus comes alive again. He passes through the grave clothes and he leaves the tomb in proper and good order. Knocks the stone out and over, and he steps out victorious to go about his mission. A group of faithful women uh, come to the tomb that morning. They go to minister just to his body. They love him so much that even his dead corpse is something they want to be with. And so they go to see him. They find the tomb open. And we get the impression Mary Magdalene goes running off to talk to the disciples. The others stay. They actually meet the angels in a different scenario, not told here in this story. And John picks up here in 20. Mary runs and she gets Peter and she gets John and they all go running back to the, to the tomb together. And again, you, the way John tells it is this kind of great intensification. She gets Peter and she gets John and they all start walking back to the tomb. And then they notice they're kind of walking a little bit faster and then they're walking a little bit faster and then one of them kind of breaks out into a trot and before they know it, they're all sprinting to the tomb. And there seems to be an order of how they get there. John, the young man, gets there first. He's winded, knees, you know, hands on knees, looking around. The tomb's open, but what on earth has happened? Peter gets there second, and being classic, impetuous, Peter goes straight into the tomb. Mary Magdalene, not the fastest runner. <laughs> Peter and John go into the tomb. They have a moment where they realize he's alive. And John tells the story. They believe. They get it. They understand. The reason the tomb's empty is because he's not dead anymore. He was dead yesterday. He's not dead today. And they have like a moment together. They catch each other's eyes. The scriptures are clear. And they go tearing off, neglecting to have a conversation with Mary. There would be an easy joke there about classic masculinity, but I'm not going to take it. I'm going to walk right past it. And they go running off to go tell Jesus' mother and the other disciples. And Mary shows up a bit later. You kind of get the, the classic moment. She steps into the garden as they're going out, and she's just overcome. I mean, it's been a rough day for her. She was up before the sun even came up. She walked all the way out there. She ran all the way back to Peter and then to John. She sprinted all the way there. The poor woman is wrecked. And then when she gets there, the two disciples she went to God, they're already gone. And it's too much. And in verse 11, she hits that like soul-crushing, overwhelming I don't know what I'm doing with my life anymore moment. It's like the gears in her soul just kind of fall apart. And she comes unglued 
and all of the stoppers for tears and snot are pulled out and she falls apart. And John now tells these next sections with so much intimacy and highlighting the tenderness of Jesus. If you miss the emotion, you miss the passage. This paragraph picks up with a woman who is absolutely wrecked. Standing outside a tomb in the middle of a graveyard, bawling her eyes out. Hopeless, she looks into the tomb. I don't know what she's looking for. She doesn't know what she's looking for. She knows Peter and John saw something in there, so she might as well follow in after them. And it gives you the emotional condition of this woman. That when she steps into the tomb, she's not bothered by the two guys reclining inside it. (laughs) And John highlights for us specifically that she saw two angels in white. Here, I, I suspect they're not in their standard creatures of fire sort of form. They've taken a bit more normalcy. But the idea, again, clothed in white, they're going to stick out. These are not the type of people that you meet and you go, oh, yeah, you're a normal dude. Two normal dudes hanging out in a graveyard in the middle of the morning. It's normal. Everything's normal. I'm fine. (laughs) John's intentionally telling it so that the whole thing is just wrong. Everything's backwards. It's all upside down and topsy-turvy. And She pokes her head in, and there's guys hanging out there, and she's totally fine with it. Again, a woman who has come unhinged, a little bit unglued. And they ask what would seem like a really normal question in a graveyard, wouldn't it? Why are you crying? <laughs> Why are you weeping? Well, I'm, I, I mean, look around. You should know where I am. You're sitting in the tomb. You should have an idea. They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Again, understand, she see, he's dead. He's gone. Here's a woman who is filled with so much love and so much longing. She doesn't expect him to be alive. She just wants to be with his corpse. I mean, that is a level of love. Staggering. John doesn't tell us how she hears Jesus come up behind her. It could have been the two angels are like, it could have been their point. It could be she hears him, but she turns around and you get the impression she kind of glances at him. She sees a guy, a guy's walking up and he does include this. She turns back to the tomb. Her first conversation with her risen Lord and she's not even looking at him. Jesus asks again, woman, why are you weeping? And now the key question Whom are you seeking? It's a really interesting question in a graveyard, isn't it? It's an interesting question to be asked to a person standing in front of a tomb. Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking the dead? We'll not find them here. Are you seeking the living? Well, that would be a very interesting question. Why would they even be here? Supposing him to be a gardener, she says to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I will take him away. And again, I, I love that. John, he includes it. It's like she says it over her shoulder, not even looking at him. Until she hears the voice. Mary. How many times has she heard that said? I mean, remember her life, she, she has really had a rough go in life. 
She's not one of those we would call a covenant child who is safe from all of the horrors of the world. She's converted late in life, and her life is a misery. And now to hear the the voice she's been longing for, she's expecting it to be dead in the ground, and yet it's coming from behind her. Mary so intimately, so tenderly. In verse 16, she turns around in an Aramaic Rabboni. It's not just rabbi teacher. It's something bigger. What she's saying here is she's not quite ascribing him divinity yet, but man, she's close. And what does she do? She turns, she sees him, and you get the impression from Jesus' response in verse 17. She does what any normal human would do in that situation. What would any normal human do in that situation? Are you going to stand there and watch? Oh, hey, look, it's good to see you. I thought you were dead. You died a couple of days ago. No, she, she runs to him and just wraps herself around him. I love the intimacy of a woman wiping her snot on the resurrected Lord's shoulder. I mean, this is a woman who's wrecked. I mean, she's emotionally absolutely destroyed. And here she is. She's just grabbed him and she's squeezing him. And you see the most intimate of responses from Christ. And this is the first thing we're going to highlight. Verse 17. Jesus says to her, and again... (laughs) Do not cling to me. Why do not cling to me? Because that's exactly what she's doing when he says it. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Don't cling to me anymore. Because I have not yet ascended to my father. Instead, go to my brothers and tell them, I'm going to ascend to my father. And my father will also be your father. And my God will be your God. You see, you need to understand that in the midst of all of what Jesus, resurrected Jesus, has to do, he pauses. I mean, this is like the greatest to-do list in human history, and he pauses to have an interchange with one crying woman. I mean, he's resurrected Lord. He has everything to do. And instead, he stops in for one moment in the garden and restores one woman And in the middle of restoring her, he says, look, it's time for you to stop crying. Don't cling to me now because I will never leave you again. That's the heart of his statement to her. Look, don't cling to me. You don't need to squeeze me so tightly. You don't have to worry about me stepping away from you again. I can't die again. I've already beaten death. I've destroyed it. I've turned it inside out. And in doing so, guess what? I made us family. So that my father that I've been telling you about for years is now your father. And my God that I've been telling you about I would make a way to, he's now your God. No one can ever separate us again. How much you bet she remembered that paragraph for the rest of her life? Him ascending into glory and when she would go into old age and go into suffering or go into death to know he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me because he can't. Now, some of us, this is the promise that we need to remember. Some of us today is we have, some of us, great difficulty in our world. 
Some of us are in the middle of a season of great sorrow and great sadness. Maybe it's a, a period of health troubles. Maybe it's a period of difficulty with job or difficulty with friends or difficulty with spouse or difficulty with any number of things. And it is imperative that we keep this promise fixed in our minds. He can never leave us. He can't. I mean, we can try to leave him. It doesn't work very well. But he can never leave us. He's our Savior. And if we are his child, if we are God's child, we have been knit together as family. He gives her this tremendous promise and then at the same time gives her a command. Look, you need to go tell the other disciples. In verse 18, Mary went and announced. I suspect she went with renewed legs. I bet she was probably fairly sore when she woke up in the morning. I doubt that was a slow trip back to the disciples. Verse 18, you get the impression, she bursts in the door. I've seen him! How fun would that have been? (laughs) You've seen what now? (laughs) Come again, who? (laughs) He was dead, you know that, right? I know, I just talked to him. You're never going to believe what he just said, too. He said he'll never leave me ever again. John jumps ahead in the day. You think there's chaos between verses 18 and 19 and much chaos. Verse 19, in the midst of all of the chaos, the disciples gather together hmm, morning and evening. They've gathered together on Sunday and they've locked the doors because they're afraid of the Jews. And it makes a great deal of sense. The Jews just executed Jesus a couple of days ago. And then, oh yeah, by the way, it didn't take... I mean, they they killed him and everything, but he didn't stay dead. And now the tomb's empty and the entire city would have been in an uproar. I suspect Mary probably didn't do a very good job of keeping a secret either. (laughs) And so they get in the room and they lock the doors and you think this is probably the strategy meeting. Not of all of the disciples, like all of the followers, men and women and children. I suspect this is for the uh, 12, 11 uh, themselves. And the doors being locked, Jesus came and stood among them. It lets us in on a little clue about what the resurrected body is like, and the answer is different. Um, It still looks human. I mean, obviously, she turned around and saw Jesus and thought he was a gardener. So he looks normal. He looks human in that regard. But it has properties that we're not fully able to understand yet. Uh, They got the doors locked, and suddenly he's in the room with them. And of course, what's the first thing that's going to, he's going to say at that point? Peace be with you all. And that might make a great deal of sense because if there's a guy that you don't recognize suddenly standing in the middle of a locked room, you are not going to be okay with that guy. If you're home alone and you have all your doors locked and all your windows locked and you turn around and somebody's standing in your den with you, I promise you it will not be a happy reception. <laughs> Jesus is like, easy guys, peace. I'm here, it's okay. Peace be to you. And then he shows them. And again, it, it clues us in a little bit. Of, they, don't, they don't recognize him immediately. And so he's displaying to them, look, I am your Savior. I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you followed for years. I am the one who has died. And I am the one who is alive. And 21, after showing them these things, he says, peace be with you again. Well, actually, back up 20. This, this is my favorite. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad they saw him. I love that little addition. They weren't glad initially. 
Like, oh no, we do know it's Jesus. Okay, now we can be happy again. We can, we can be okay together. And now Jesus again has another moment of intimacy with his people. He steps and says, look, peace be with you. Now understand, I've been telling you for years that the Father has sent me on a mission. And I've accomplished that mission. I've lived, I've died, I've been resurrected, and a little bit I'm going to ascend. But you need to understand the work isn't done yet. Just as the Father sent me even now, I'm sending you, apostles, disciples. I'm I'm sending you on a mission. And your mission is to continue that which I have begun. It's to grow the church, to plant the church, to be the the, uh, first generation of the New Testament church. And to equip them for this, he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. A foreshadowing of Pentecost where all of God's people would receive the Holy Spirit. Here, connected to their office, they're entrusted with God's Spirit for the purpose of building the church. And again, if you're the disciples, what a transformation. What a, what a again, using the, the roller coaster illustration, what a moment of accelerated change. These are the guys that most of them 48 hours earlier or so, were betraying him. Understand who we're talking about. All but a couple of these guys are like, oh, they got Jesus, I'm out, I'll see you later. One of them is explicitly lying to little girls about it. I mean, the most threatening of people. And here Jesus is stepping in and saying, oh yeah, by the way, you saw how the Father sent me to do a mission? Now you're my guys, and I'm going to use you. Wow. I mean, these guys don't really have a great track record. I mean, we have four books, and not really a whole lot of it is excellent stuff that they've done yet. Most of it's just them missing the point or failing terribly. And Jesus says, no, look here. You're my guys. Go do my task. And whereas the first promise to Mary Magdalene shows Christ will never leave his people again, this one shows actually that his transformation in them is real. It's not just a psychological condition. It's not just, oh, life is different if I'm a Christian. It's not just, well, that means I don't cheat on my taxes. It means that if you know the Lord, your life is different. And that transformation is genuine. It's deep and it's real and it can't be contained. And it spreads and it oozes and it changes everything. Third vignette. Thomas, probably on maybe the worst time grocery run in human history. (laughs) I don't know if it's a grocery run. I'm just, I'm making that part up. But Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. Worst decision ever. So the other disciples tell him, probably Monday, you will not believe what you missed last night. I mean, seriously, you'll never believe who we talked to. Who'd you talk to? Well, we talked to Jesus he's dead. You know that, right? Kind of hard to talk to him. He's not here anymore. He's gone. And they say, no, seriously, he's, he's alive. He came and he said, peace be with you. And he showed us. And Thomas says, well, unless I see it for myself, I'm not going to believe. And my friends right there, that's the description of a hard heart. That's the description of, again, why these guys are actually failures through so much of the book and why the promise given in the previous paragraph is so spectacular. You guys are my, my officers in the church. Go, go spread the church. 
Because what do these guys like? Well, the next we see a paragraph of guy, ah, I don't believe. I refuse unless I see it. And Jesus, again, in unbelievable kindness, with all the things that he has to do, the next Sunday, eighth day, they count the first day as being part of it. So the next Sunday, they've gathered together again for worship. Notice the pattern they're setting. Resurrection day, resurrection day, resurrection day. Pattern we're following today. The disciples are inside again. Verse 26, Thomas is with them this time. Good decision, Thomas. The doors are locked, and guess what happens? Jesus is there again. We don't know if he just suddenly appears or if he walks through the walls, if he's able to teleport or what. We don't know, but he's there, and he says, It's okay. Peace be with you. That's good news. Strange guy in the house again. Thomas is there, and Jesus shows him all the marks of salvation. And Thomas responds appropriately, verse 28, it's great, Lord, my Lord and my God. He recognizes exactly who Jesus is. And Jesus says, good for you for believing in me, because you saw it, and good for you. I'm glad you believe. But let's be honest, the real victory is for those who never see. Well, not this side of heaven. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And now we see this third portrait of intimacy where Jesus steps in and shows a man exactly who he is. Three tender snapshots of Christ. One, ministering to a crying woman, telling her, I'll never leave you again, I can't. Two, ministering to scared and slightly cowardly disciples, saying, oh yeah, by the way, you have my spirit, now go spread the church. Three, ministering to a hard-hearted saint. Hear that. Ministering to a hard-hearted saint and stepping in and saying, look, I know you're unbelievable, I know you're hard-hearted, let me fix that. Now go be my man and go serve the church. And it's at this point you see these three kind of categories of people. The broken, the cowardly, and the hard-hearted. All three of them ministered to by their Savior so tenderly. And then John tips his hand. Why have I been telling this story the way that I have? So that you, no matter who you are, Are you the broken? Are you the cowardly? Are you the hard-hearted? It doesn't matter who you are. I've been telling the story so that you too may believe in Jesus. So that when you read this book, that you too find life in his promises, find life in his work, so that you too would believe that Jesus is God himself. Now, that means that we have to apply a passage like this, and it would be appropriate to apply uh, from the, the back part to the front, I guess, here, starting at the very end. Why is this book here? Well, it's written so that you believe and so that I believe. And so we have our standard categories to think about. One, if you are not a Christian, if you do not believe, and you're sitting here listening to the story, listening to the sermon, listening to Jesus, and you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. Well, one, you, you need to know him. You need to hear him. You need to believe in him. And he will transform your life and he will never leave you. And he's faithful. And he's true and he's good. And if you fall in that category, ask me afterwards. That's what I do. I love having that conversation. More realistically, though, we probably, in a church this size, we're probably more represented by a gathering of those three kinds of people. 
those that are filled with tears, those that are filled with fears, and those that have hearts too hard to care. That's probably a more accurate representation. And I would say for those, whichever category you fall into, the promises are no less for you today. If you're filled with with tears, guess what? He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never let you go. And you are part of the family of God. You belong. Find comfort and consolation in his promises and believe them. Now, I would encourage you, remember, belief is an active thing. It's not a passive thing. It has to be nourished. It has to be fed. So if you're one of the people in here filled with tears, feed your faith by remembering and contemplating and memorizing the promises of God. So that as the tears fill your eyes, the promises fill your heart. If you're a person filled with fears, more likely filled with insecurities, you struggle with who you are or how you're made, you don't like parts of who you are or how you look or who you end up being. I would encourage you as well, believe God. Believe in Jesus because He uses people just like that. He uses broken people. He uses wounded creatures to accomplish his perfect purposes. Look at the disciples. They are a mess. And yet he uses them to build a church that would cover the entire planet. And you know what? He's designed you to be used as well. The challenge for you is the same thing, to believe in God's promises, to trust in Him, to find your identity and your meaning in those promises, and then go serve, no matter how afraid you are. No matter how insecure you are, no matter if you think, well, I'm just not good enough to do what God has called me to do. Let Him be the determinant of that, not you. Trust in God and serve Him. And then lastly, for those that are hard-hearted, is actually here, interestingly, uh, he gives the most spectacular reason for not being so so hard-hearted. You may not have caught this at the end. It's hidden there, tucked away a little bit. Why is the motivate... Why... That sentence was maybe the ugliest sentence in the human history. I just murdered that. What is the motivation for getting rid of our hard-heartedness at the end here where he's talking to Thomas? If you want blessing, cultivate faith. You see, most of us actually, part of our hard-heartedness is connected to we want to do things our way because we think our way is the best way. I mean, that's kind of in essence what Thomas is saying. Look, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. I'm not going to trust your senses. I'm only going to trust my own. I'm not going to trust your eyes. You could have been hallucinating. I'm going to trust my eyes. I'm not going to trust anything but myself. And Jesus says, look, there is a a benefit to that. He got to know Jesus Christ. But if you want to be really blessed, if you want to have a rich life, you want to have a full life, you want to have blessing on top of blessing, no, not financially, trust in the Lord. Nurture your faith, nurture your belief, because as you grow in those things, you are blessed. You'll be filled with joy and peace. And you'll have gentleness that overflows and kindness and all of that work that God does within you makes your life better. If you're hard-hearted, the challenge is this. Do you want to have a better life or not? 
Because hard-heartedness leads to a bad life, not a good one. And then one final challenge for us all together is as a body here at Christ Ridge, as we continue to grow and run out of seats and have overflow chairs and get ready to build a building and do all of the things that a church in Fort Mill is doing, will we together stay committed to verse 31? So that we might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we might have life. Because if we have all of the neat trimmings of a growing church, but we do not have that, we are a waste of space. I'm a waste of a pastor, and you're a waste of people. If we miss that, if we miss believing in Jesus as the primary mission of this church, We've lost it all. And I might challenge you to think about that for your life as well. John's challenged us too. He's written a book, in fact, for the sole purpose of calling us to think about that. Might it be that we do exactly what he said and consider our belief in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he lived. We thank you that he died. And we thank you that he was raised. And that in doing so, he conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered sin. And he is conquering us. And we happily rejoice that we may be called your children. Thank you. Lord, we pray that you would give us belief. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.